Hi, I'm Kevin Steinberg, and you're listening to Frankly Kev. This is the Everyday Hero series, where I speak with people who have faced one of life's many challenges, and we talk about how they got through it, and what they did to come out the other side, not only to survive, but thrive. On today's episode, Cool Runnings Israel, Army of One, I speak with someone who was called out of the blue and at the last minute to compete as a member of Israel's bobsleigh team. He became a founding member and the following year they qualified for the world championships. He thought he was done, but was called upon again and this time to the administrative side where he helped the Israeli team get all the way to the Winter Olympics, where he had the privilege of walking in the athletes parade. And he's now the president of the Israeli Olympic Bobsleigh Skeleton Federation. Please help me welcome David Graves. David Graves, welcome to Frankly Kev. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Kev. I'm very excited to reconnect and to share a bit of our story. So I'm sure everyone wants to know, how does somebody go from being in their mid-30s and living life and suddenly decide they have to get involved with Israel's bobsled and skeleton team and then years later take it to the Olympics and be the uh, president's of the Federation? Well, it certainly wasn't in the game plan, but, uh, and I'll just correct you, I was in my early 30s, not my mid 30s. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was all sort of fortuitous. I had moved to Calgary for about a year and a half for work. And at that time, there were two guys who, this is after the 2002 Salt Lake City Olympic Winter Games. Right where they had seen bobsled and they were athletes and they were Jewish and they were Zionists and they felt. I'm just going to interject for one sec, just for listeners who may not know, just quickly explain what's the sport of bobsled and sure. skeleton is. So bobsled, the easiest way to explain it is uh, many people have heard of the Jamaican bobsled team or the movie Cool Runnings. And right. it, it's a two or four man sport. The athletes start outside of essentially a toboggan. They're on an ice track or a long tube. It's about a kilometer long. And you push as fast as you can for about 30 minutes. You hop in and then you drive the sled down the track. So the fastest team wins. How fast isn't that? Uh, like yeah, the fastest now, the fastest bobsled was clocked at, in Whistler ooh, a couple of years ago, the fastest track in the world now, which was built for the 2010 uh, Olympic Games in Vancouver. The clocking was over 150 kilometers an hour, wow. so almost 100 miles an hour. And when I was doing it, we ranged anywhere from 125 to 135 kilometers an hour. You know, that was sort of the traditional, typical speeds. Skeleton is on the same track, uh, and I should say there's two man and four man, and then there's mm -hmm. two woman and monobob. So they don't have a four woman program, but they have a two woman, which is the same as the two man, and then they have the monobob, which is essentially a single athlete. So right. as that athlete, you would push and then you'd hop in and it's just you taking that thing down, down the track. And that's a newer sport. The coming up, the Olympic Games coming up in Beijing will be the first time that that will actually be in the Olympic program. Now, I would think that you want, you would want to be in the one that has four mints. So you've got more padding around you. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's probably something to be said for that, but I'll tell you when you're upside down, which you're not supposed to be, uh, you're supposed to be shiny side down as in the runners or the, the blades. Uh, if you mm -hmm. do uh, end up upside down, you know, you're sort of all on your own. You're stuck in the sled. You've got a big 
300 pound sled pinning you to the ice and and you know there's no brakes and it's ice so when you're upside down you basically you're at the mercy of gravity (laughs) so you (laughs) slow down when you slow down right eventually it comes to a stop and it, it can be pretty traumatic it's it's dangerous but it's not deadly of course there's been serious injury and death very rarely but a few times a few times over the course of the history of the sport uh, it's certainly safer than it used to be, but there's still all kinds of issues that they're working on and touchings, et cetera. Skeleton, just to jump into that description, is on the same track and it's a single person sport and you push off again at the start and you jump on the sled on your stomach head first. So you're going head first on this, what looks like cafeteria tray, for lack of a better a little bit bigger than that and you take that thing down the the track as quickly as you can and so our program includes bobsled athletes and skeleton athletes so how fast from the top of the track to the end is an average run like 30 seconds oh it's it's under a minute again some tracks are longer and some tracks are shorter but generally you're looking at under a minute to get down the track in a place like park city utah where the salt lake city sliding sports took place uh you can get down that track and i think maybe even under 50 seconds and then a place like lake placid new york which is a longer track um you know 50 something seconds so you had better have your skills beforehand because once you go down there's no time to think or react or plan or anything there's a lot of memory uh, mm-hmm. uh memory work done with the pilots who are driving the yeah. sled Uh, There's a lot of um, visualization. There's a lot of training runs. Obviously, when you start the sport, you usually start the sport. And like when you very first time get in the bobsled, you start from halfway down the track. They don't throw you to the top of the hill until they... uh, I would want to start 10 feet from the finish line. (laughs) (laughs) Let me just push push it down the finish line. Like a a little kid going down a hill. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So like anything, it's baby steps, it's progression. And because it is a dangerous sport, uh, I mean, there's danger to it, obviously, if you're traveling that fast. And so you want to be... I mean, there's a... You don't want to get into the sled with someone who isn't confident that they can get the sled down the track. You know, a lot of this sport, like many other um, sports, and with the Olympic Games on right now, it's confidence, right? If you get yeah. to your sport and you and you have doubts and you're not confident, um, it, it, it does um, manifest in your performance. So, of course, of course. Uh, and when it comes to deadly deadly situations, uh, or not deadly, but dangerous, you certainly want to be confident as, as the pilot. And mm. certainly you're taking down athletes behind you that you know, are putting their life in your hands, essentially. I think th- this to me is almost like an extreme sport. So I think you better have uh, some big cojones if you get into <laughs> an sport like this. So thank you yeah. so much for explaining that to listeners. Now let's go back to move forward, right to the beginning. Who, what, why, yeah. where? Well, uh, as I said, I was in Calgary. I was living in Calgary for work. I, I lived just right close to where the bobsled facilities are, actually. And uh, I was out for dinner and I remember, you know, I drive out of where the sort of community we live, you could see um, the bobsled track and they light it at night. So it's and you see this lit tube coming and it's, you know, it's kind of a neat looking thing. Very you cool. don't see that very often. Only a few cities have that. The guys who started the team, one of the guys is the brother-in-law of a very good friend of mine, someone that you know, Richard Naren, mm. uh, a Winnipegger who now works for the hockey team in Phoenix, mm. uh, the Arizona Coyotes. His brother-in-law was the guy who had the idea of starting this program. And I knew him, Aaron, from the wedding and various things around the time that they got married. This was before bobsled, but 
Uh, and then just a couple years later, as I said, I was out for dinner. I got a phone call on a, a voicemail asking if I could be recruited to the Israeli bobsled team. And now this is Aaron Zeth, a U.S. Air Force pilot and John Frank, the San Francisco's 49ers tight end. Yeah, my two my two teammates. Uh, uh, Aaron is the brother-in-law of my good friend, Aaron Zeth. He was an Air Force pilot. So he was made for speed and, and quick reaction and all that kind of stuff in a cockpit setting. And that's sort of the kind of setting you are when you're sitting at the front of a bobsled. Sure. Uh, and his good friend, uh, he reached out to initially was a guy named John Frank, as you mentioned, he won two Super Bowls with uh, San Francisco in the 80s. And we were all sort of in our early to mid 30s. John's a little bit older than us. And they thought that uh, this would be something with, that they could do that would be really special um, in terms of representing a country that they love and they support in all other ways. Uh, and right. uh, so it found they found themselves in Calgary, which is one of the North American pro facilities that offered driver schools, basically, to, to learn the sport and to see if you could do it. And I happened to be in Calgary around the time that they were doing that, unbeknownst to each other. But one of the guys got injured. So Aaron called my buddy, his brother-in-law, and said, do you know any guys in Calgary? We have a race and one of our guys is injured. And I think Rich's response was, call Gravy because he'll do anything. So uh, <laughs> a few weeks later, I found myself in the back of a bobsled. Right place, totally. right time. Yeah. Um, and so, listen, you see it on TV. You think it's just, oh, they run, they jump in. It's this wonderful sport. And I could do that, right? It's beautiful when you see it on TV. These are professionals. These are people that have mm -hmm. been doing it for years. The first time you do it, it isn't so beautiful. Uh, and my experience was <laughs> certainly traumatic, uh, which could have ended my career as a bobsledder. Um, we crashed. And um, oh. I remember the first thing that John told me, uh, who was actually driving the sled that day, which I only found out later, that he had never actually gotten the sled down from the top of the sled, to, from the top of the track to the bottom. Yeah, you know, right side up. Uh, these are facts and figures that I knew nothing about. They withheld them so that they could get you into the. <laughs> it, it might have. It might have had an impact on my decision. He said to me, uh, "If we crash, this is what you should do." Right? He told me how to position and what to do with my head and my neck and my shoulders. So that was probably the best advice I got of anything to do with with the sport because we, in fact, crashed. And and then the other thing uh, he did at the beginning before we set off on down the track. He said, uh, gravy, say the Shema, which, as you know, is, uh, is a Jewish prayer. Um, hero Israel, the Lord is. Uh, so I sort of, you know, chuckled and said a few words of the Shema. And then uh, we were off uh, down the track. And, of course, uh, we crashed about halfway down. And, uh, again, thank goodness mm -hmm. I had been given some instruction as to what to do. Because those instructions were so much in my moment yeah. of need what i needed to know how to Tuck be your head safe. Roll into a ball basically was you know shrug your shoulders yeah. and try to keep your head you know you know from being able to be uh, manipulated and then of course there's a lot of heat um because you're pinned on the ice and the friction at 100 kilometers an hour until you slow down it's like you know you're like an iceberg iceberg yeah. so I had shoulder pads on and we were all padded, but uh, even through shoulder pads and through my whatever, I could feel the heat coming through the shoulder pads. Wow. And I remember uh, even now just vividly, just sort of trying to maneuver myself. Mm. So I wasn't going to be on this one spot that was heating up. I could move around a bit. Anyway, it was um, 
it wasn't what I expected, but listen, I got back in the sled and, and, you know, 20 years later now, literally 20 years coming up to the next Olympic games was roughly around the time I got in the sled for the first time. And 20 years later, we've already been to one Olympic games and we have athletes that are prospective Olympians for the upcoming games. So, you know, it was a little bit of sacrifice for an experience of a lifetime that continues giving back to so me what was the every year. Next step after competing in the sport, and then deciding to move behind the scenes and help them get a team together. Yeah. Well, you know, our goal was to qualify for the Olympics in 2006. That was that was our goal. When we first uh, d- determined that we could actually do mm-hmm. the sport, which was after my crash and after Aaron was back and healthy, we we went back to the track. And uh, just a funny anecdote, people asked me when I tell the story, if it was scary the first time I did this, I might've mentioned this to you before, I can't remember. It wasn't scary the first time because I had no idea what to expect, right? You're naive, you don't know. But I was horrified the second time. <laughs> to the point where when I got in the sled, I wasn't actually sure if I could do it. I started to have a bit of a panic attack and I was thinking about trying to hop out of the sled <laughs> as the thought crossed my mind. the field. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> leave me alone. As the thought entered my mind, we were already at the first mm-hmm. corner because we were on the downhill and we took off. This was my second time and Aaron hadn't been in the sled in weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, anyway, we got out safe. And I remember again, aiming at the bottom of the hill as we crossed the, the finish line, screaming because I was so excited. My boss actually thought I had injured myself and that we had crashed again because he heard this guy screaming. He didn't know what the screaming was about. I was punching Aaron in the back of the head, so excited um, as we were coming across the finish. Well, a couple of things happened before I take you to the, the transition mm-hmm. to um, getting uh, behind sure. the scenes. Uh, I think it's important to just share this from a from a Jewish story content perspective. You know, one of the things that we achieved in our in our time as a team is we um, we qualified for two world championships which are basically the Olympics of our sport in non-Olympic years, right? During the Olympic year, there's no world championships. The the world championships, the year that we qualified, our first season was at a track called Konigse. Uh, It's in Bavaria, in Germany. Uh, As a matter of fact, in the recent floods and rains, that historic track was washed away and destroyed. So that's just a sidebar. But the the really interesting and infamous part of that world is the adjacent town to where the track is. And they're all sort of little cute little beautiful towns in you know Bavaria in the, in the valley on the top of the hill there's a, um, a fortress that was Hitler's fortress uh, it's called Eagle's Nest yes and when we first arrived there we knew the track was we knew that the Eagle's Nest was there because prior to us going there um, a Russian Jewish uh, manager of the of the US bobsled program if you caught that uh, an older guy and he heard about us and was so excited that there was an israeli team and he said to us you have to make the world championship because do you know what's there eagle's nest i'll tell you in 2004 when we made the world championships and so we get there as the israeli team we had no idea what to expect it's rural it's not in you know mainstream germany it's under the eye of eagle's nest and 65 years prior to us being there was the Holocaust and the state of Israel didn't exist yet. Yeah. Here we are bringing the Israeli yeah. flag to the track, laying it up amongst the nations and up, a, up the hill, you see Eagle's Nest and I get chills 
every time I tell that story. A huge irony of life. Totally. Right. I mean, it's, it's an irony and it's, uh, you know, when you, when you, when the phrase, you know, they'd spin in their grave if they knew what was going on. The fact that we were in Hitler's front yard and we had the Israeli flag there. Uh, and one of the poignant quotes at, at, for me at that time was, you know, today we choose to wear the star right because we had stars of david on our on our uniforms and our bobsled and 65 years ago wearing the star was uh, a source of shame because it it identified the jewish people here we are in germany with a connection to hitler and we're wearing the star because we want to wear the star and it's the blue and white and it's the flag of israel so i just wanted to share that because that was sort of and that's been a moment that all my athletes have had since i left the sport because Mm -hmm. That's a very popular track, and it's always on the circuit. Our athletes have had their own personal experience under, you know, in the shadow of this fortress. Are all the athletes on the Israeli team, are they either Jewish or a citizen of Israel or or, or live in Israel? Well, you don't have to be Jewish because we actually have Arab Israelis on one of our bobsled team, too. So you have to be an Israeli or you have to be a resident. So in our case, as North American Jews, we were able to make Aliyah and Aliyah is the process of becoming an Israeli. If you're Jewish, that's your right to become a citizen of Israel. And the process is fairly quick. You know, you have to prove you're Jewish and that's in various ways. Jewish mother, bar mitzvah certificate. Pull down your pants, but you you never know. (laughs) (laughs) I can see it on your face. All of us. Uh, And it's also a source of pride to me is running a program where we are helping Jews who are not necessarily that connected to Israel or, you know, come from an, a very secular background, right. you know, maybe had a bar mitzvah yeah. uh, and, and they have become, you know, Zionists. They've become so proud of the country they represent. They've become citizens of the country that they represent. That's awesome. And so that's a little, a little byproduct of some of the work that we do. So when we weren't going to get to the game, determined that we weren't going to qualify, you know, our, we disbanded as a team. That was our objective. And Excuse me for in- interjecting for listeners. So not going to the Olympic Games, it just means you're not going to the Games, but you're still competing in world championships. You're still allowed to train and compete elsewhere. Of course, yeah. I mean, the pinnacle for any athlete usually is that you get to the Olympics. Yeah. But... What we don't see in between the Olympic Games are world championships and world cup races and all the life that these athletes live competing every year. And then ultimately every four years with the opportunity to try to compete at the Olympics. So like uh, any uh, sport um, and championship or Olympics, you have to meet a certain qualifying time. Right. So there's uh, the qualification is based on point system. So it's determined by where you finish in the race, different circuits too. the world cup being the premier circuit. If you're competing on the world cup and you finish first using just round numbers, you might get 10,000 points. If you're uh, competing on the North America's cup, which is a smaller circuit, and you finish first, you might only get 140 okay. points. At the end of the year, all the points that have been accumulated by each athlete, regardless of what circuit you're on, puts you in an international yeah. ranking. And then that's really the qualifying standard. There's two qualifying standards. There's the international qualifying standard, which says you have to, you have to be in the top 60 in the world to even potentially be offered an invitation. Um, and then each country might have their own qualifying criteria. So, for example, the qualifying criteria for my skeleton athletes for the upcoming games in six months, they will more than likely meet the international standard. Uh, But Israel has made the standard even more difficult because they want 
to send a competitive team. Not that the international standard in our sport isn't competitive, it actually is. And my job is to lobby for my athletes to be able to qualify according to the international standard. There's no point making it more difficult when it's already only 25 athletes in the world will qualify in our sport. There's hundreds upon hundreds, there's 200 and something athletes that compete with skeleton. If you make it to the top 25, I think that's a pretty good accomplishment. But to be consistent with other sports that the Israeli Olympic Committee manage, right? So the uh, National Olympic Committee, they say, well, we do the same for all sports. We're grateful that we can compete for them. Um, it just means our athletes have to be better and stronger and faster, and we find a way to do it. But that's part of my job. Part of my job is the is the relationships with um, the international committee and community at, uh, coaching athletes, nations, as well as, and most specifically, the Israeli Olympic Committee, um, who we represent in our daily activities. In the very beginning, even before you were brought on board, did Israel have any uh, bobsleigh or skeleton team or even a team at all that was competing in world championships or, or anywhere? Yeah, the only winter sport that Israel had been doing up until our point. So figure they skating. were still sending a team to the Winter Olympics, right. just yeah. figure skating. Yeah. yeah, in the Vancouver Games in 2010, they sent uh, two ice dancers and one alpine skier. That was the so the team was made up of three wow. athletes and, and the delegation. And then to today, how big is the Israeli Winter Olympic team, and how big is the bobsleigh skeleton team? Okay, so um, two questions: the 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 Winter Olympic team that went to uh, Pyeongchang in 2018, of which me and my athlete were uh, part of, uh, that was ten athletes. And that was the biggest winter team is ever sent. So there was a skeleton athlete, there was a downhill skier, there was a short track speed skater, and there were three or four or five um, figure skaters, ice dancers, etc. So we made up the team. Um, our program, our bobsleigh skeleton program, had three skeleton athletes leading up to those winter games, uh, and so our three athletes were also competing against right. each other. Right, then we weren't going to be sending three athletes. We hopefully going to send one. So within our three athletes, we had to determine who our number one athlete was amongst those three. So before the games, there were three athletes. Now I have fifteen athletes. This is who's training the number of athletes training behind the scenes all year long. Yeah. So there there were three athletes before the last Olympics, and they were they were three skeleton athletes, male skeleton athletes. Now I've got two bobsled teams and two skeleton athletes, a female athlete, which is our first international female athlete who has a legitimate chance at qualifying. We have a North American skeleton male athlete. And then we've got two bobsled programs made up of two bobsled pilots that are mm -hmm. North American athletes. But the crew, the pushers are all Israeli. Uh, and as I said, within that, we have... Uh, right now, three Arab Israelis uh, that make up um, part of the team. So who is behind the curtain looking after everything? I mean, scheduling and, and the booking the tracks uh, to to practice run on and the travel and, you know, making sure that all of the athletes have everything that they, they need. I mean, is it all 
you or do you have someone or team helping you? Yeah, it's a combination of things. Primarily the day-to-day of the athletes is managed by the athletes, right? Like we have a program. The athletes know what the program is. They know what the code of conduct is. We are the administration of our program. So they can't do anything without us because we are the ones who register for races. We're the ones that deal with all the the crap and the good stuff that have to happen for them to get on the ice. But in terms of their day-to-day and the logistics, travel, fundraising, recruiting athletes. We have a bit of involvement there in terms of some national standards, but the athletes themselves really run the program. They're behind each of their own curtains. Now there's a bigger curtain behind the little curtain. We'd be the bigger curtain. You know, we're dealing with, we deal with international relations. We deal with personal relations within the Federation, our own program. And you can imagine with 15 athletes, there's, you know, we're not all the same people. Um, we draft an athlete agreement that each athlete has to sign with a code of conduct. Like we're really, you know, it's not glamorous because a lot of what we're doing is problem solving and putting fires out um, and just making sure that our athletes have what they need administratively. You know, we have to register the athletes for races, right? We are often writing letters to the international federation uh, for our sport, um, for bursary help, all kinds of stuff that goes on. But when it comes to the actual sliding, getting on the track, getting from track to track, uh, even in some cases, finding the right coaches for them, um, the athletes themselves manage a big portion of that. With some guidance from us, decisions aren't made, uh, you know, on in the field without us knowing, because we need to know for various reasons. But uh, each athlete yeah. has to come up with uh, funds on their own. So it could be 22K for accommodation and food. 15K for travel costs, 11K for track fees, 10K for equipment, fundraise for themselves, uh, quite quite a bit of <laughs> moolah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, you can't really do this. Let's just use skeleton because bobsleigh is just exponential, right? Because it's not one athlete. It's now two or four athletes. You're not, you don't have, um, you know, a, a skeleton sled can be checked in as oversized luggage. You can't take a bobsled to the airport. You're right. It's not a tennis racket that you could just check on board. I mean, you got to ship this around the world. Ship it in a crate. And so obviously the International Federation helps with that a little bit because, um, you know, when when the, the sport usually spends time in Europe and then and then in the second half or first half of the season, whatever, they then come and compete in North America. So they all make arrangements with each of our of, of us, the federations, to say, um, if you want your sled ship from Germany to Whistler, um, here's the date sure. and just let us know. So that kind of stuff. But so skeleton athletes, uh, you can't really do this um, in a serious way for less than 45, 50,000 US. And that's not, and that's right. low end, right? That's sharing coaching, that's sharing cars, that's bunking with other athletes um, in shared accommodations uh, that, I mean, just think about eight races, you know, on different tracks yeah. in different parts of the world, you know, food accommodations, you got to often rent vehicles, um, you know, it, it gets burned up pretty quickly. And so the athletes themselves, not only do they have to fundraise, but they have to be very frugal, of course. right? You know, you might want to go for that big as a celebration that's going to cost you 60 bucks or you could go to the superstore and buy $60 worth of groceries that you can make sandwiches for the next, you know, seven days, right? 
the, the highest of the highest world level athletes who are often sponsored or have uh, some larger funding from their programs, but 90%, if not more of the athletes, even some that are amongst the best in the world, they have to do a lot in the off season to try to find sponsors to have enough to live just comfortably, whatever that might mean. Now, it sounds like you're all spread out over the world. So do you have a, a yearly get together in person or on Zoom or do you show up every time they're training? So we do meet once a year at least. But of course, this is going to be the second summer that we haven't been there. So it's been two years since we we're together. The short answer is we have a, an annual meeting in Israel, uh, which is usually June or July. We all get together. It's the off season. We do the best we can to see our athletes, but even when we're there, it's nice for them that we're there, but we're not involved much in the day-to-day. -day. Once, once it's race day, they know what they need to do and we don't get in the way. But you're available to them anytime, any day. You keep in touch by text, by phone. We're talking to each other daily. Every day we're talking, we're Zoom. We've got business with this athlete and potential sponsors. We've got business with another athlete and potential sponsors. We've got uh, planning with coaching for our athletes in the UK to keep us abreast of what they're doing and to help even strategize what circuit they should be racing on next year for the best possible point opportunities for should they become in North America? Should they stay in Europe? I mean, we're involved daily in terms of those kinds of conversations because we need to know and because that's our job. Of course. I want to bring it back to you. I mean, how do you find the time? Because you have a job, you have kids, you have a life, and then this requires so much attention detail and there's tasks and responsibilities where do you get the time where do you get the energy well i get the energy flag of israel that's i mean i don't mm. want to sound hokey but no not at all when i think about the privilege that i've had mm -hmm. uh, in what i've been able to do I, I don't even know how to put it into words it's a full-time job like it, it is yeah. not i'm not joking it's a full-time job certainly right now until the olympics uh i'm seven days a week, we're doing something, writing letters to whatever, I mean, we're doing something. And are you getting a stipend or is this out of true love? There's no stipend here. I mean, every dollar, you know, that we raise yeah. with the exception of having to pay bills. So we're a nonprofit, we're a 501c3 in the US. Right. We're also, so we have a, an accountant in the US who manages our stuff. So we do have some expenses. Uh, as a federation and we are also what's called an amuta which is a essentially a non-profit association in israel and we have a lawyer and accountant there who manages our stuff so outside of that and other sundry expenses the dollars that are brought into the federation yes. are primarily brought in from the athletes fundraise dollars belong to them and uh, and we do this as, as on a volunteer basis you know if i get to the games again if, if we qualify for the olympics that's a whole different story because we are now part of the olympic team and you know our flights to beijing and and living there as a member of the team will all be covered by if people want to is there somewhere that they can go to donate i can i can provide you with with that information provide a a link on yeah. the website and what is that yeah. just for people who, who are listening is there one place that they would go well we are as i said we're a nonprofit, so the easiest yeah. thing to do would be to you could go to our website which is www 
dot bobslayskeletonisrael.com. Okay. There is a donate button there. Yeah. We've just built our website, so I would just want to make sure things are working sure. properly. The other option is, and what most of our athletes do, is if people want to make a donation, they can send a check to um, our office in Scottsdale, uh, where our CFO uh, we'll send it back a tax letter, an official tax letter. Yeah. But obviously people like to do things online and we want to make it as convenient as we can. So, uh, and we've been fundraising for, you know, 10 years, uh, up and down here and there, mostly our athletes doing it. Um, and, um, it helps every, every $18 or $1,800 helps and we'll never have too much money. <laughs> how expensive the sport is it gets, it gets burned up pretty quickly once we give it out to our athletes this year we bought the uh, the olympic racing suits for for the athletes or the federation did we end up generating a little bit of revenues through some support from the olympic committee in israel they give us a little bit like i'm only talking a few thousand dollars and again we're grateful for that um but so we decided larry and i my colleague decided that we would order the official olympic racing suits um for for the athletes to have so that's it i mean at the end of the day all our athletes have learned or have come to this themselves how incredibly important it is what they do right Mm -hmm. um you know again just to go back to sort of the the byproduct of what we have developed here is, and again, when we started this, we had no idea about this. We wanted to do it for Israel. We were uh, lovers of Israel and sport and decided that this is something that we wanted to accomplish. But um, what we found out soon after was that there was a really interested Jewish community in what we were doing and, and, and the pride that they had and knowing that there was a team doing this. There are people that we compete against and we interact with or even that coach us that we might be the first Jewish people they've ever known, met, let alone Israeli, right? And uh, not to get into political stuff, but, you know, we, we provide a much needed different perspective that people might have on Israel based on what you see in the media every day, right? Responsibility now that goes beyond what we thought. Yeah, sure. I'm sure you remember this, but two years ago, there was um, the attack on the synagogue in Pittsburgh where a gunman went in and killed on a Saturday morning uh, a bunch of Jews, yeah. okay, in their house of worship. Well, that happened about two weeks before the start of our season. So completely unrelated, other than the fact that it was an attack on Jews and we're a Jewish sporting institution. One of my athletes I was talking to, he said to me that because of what happened in Pittsburgh, and he said to me that it means so much more to him now to be representing Israel and having the star on his uniform because of what happened there and that how important it is for for him to be doing this not just as a sportsman the first and foremost what he is but he's an israeli sportsman he's a Jewish sportsman whatever side of whatever thing you're on um there's a certain thing that wearing that star of david of does course. for the flag of israel as you said do you think that Without you, there would even be a bobsleigh and skeleton team. Is there? Was there anyone else who was going to do this? Is there anyone gunning for your job? You know what? I, I, it's so funny that you asked me this question, and I don't know why I was thinking this, but today, and it's not. It wasn't about this phone call or this this uh, interview. I said to myself today, and it might be because I'm watching stories about the Olympics sure. and 
Um, first of all, to answer your question in short, no. <laughs> there's, there's no one that wants my job. <laughs> the only reason that I continued was because I was so proud of what I was doing in the early 2000s. And when we retired, as a, as a, we made that decision as a team, we weren't going to get to the 2006 Games. Well, then I watched the Olympics and I saw all these athletes that we used to compete against only the year before. And it was it was it was fun and it was difficult. And I didn't know how I would somehow stay involved with the program. Um, and it sort of died for about a year and a half. And then I got a phone call from a young kid who was interested in skeleton. And I, we didn't even have skeleton in our program at the time. And I promised him, listen, if you want to pursue this, I will see if I can, if there's any pilot light left, I'll see if I can add a bit more fuel to it, keep the Federation active and I'll represent you and you'll have a Federation to slide for. And that was the beginning of, there was a demarcation line. We, our, our program ended on in the fall of 2005 mm. and my teammates sort of, we all went on our own way. We were having kids and we're married, et cetera. Um, but somewhere inside of me, I wanted to keep it alive. A year and a half later, I had the opportunity to do it. And so there was like chapter one, which was the founding of the program. And then chapter two was like the rebirth of the program. Our former teammates didn't talk about keeping it alive or I was just so desperate in wanting to find a way to get back to the top of the hill. And I knew it wasn't going to be as an athlete. So um, to answer your question in the long form, what I just said to myself this morning, I said, you know what? I don't think there wouldn't be a program without me. I was just, and I, I don't have these conversations with myself all the time. I mean, it was because I was having this chat with you today. But you're not but, being cocky. Uh, you're not being cocky. You're just. It's not cocky. No, it's not cocky. There was, it didn't exist anymore. Yeah. The only reason it continued is because I decided yeah. when I got a call from a kid and I wanted all the time to be, to be back in it, it's almost selfishly. Right. I'm almost doing it for selfish reasons because I wanted to be in that community still. Now, you know, be able to say that the Olympic program, uh, maybe this is this isn't cocky and I'm trying to be humble when I say this, but the, we, we are no longer this. The, the bad news bears of the sliding sports. Right. For Israel, we are an established program. We've got legitimate world class athletes. We qualified for the Olympic Games. We have an Olympian in our midst. Was there that we, in the beginning, though, was the Olympic community or uh, the Israeli committee or just people saying, what are you doing? You're crazy or you're Michigan. <laughs> I'll tell you, the Olympic Committee of Israel always said to us, what do we need this for? In the early years, right? I mean, they were very much not overly enthusiastic about bringing new winter sports into the program. That's changed a lot in the last five or six years because of Russian immigration, because of North American immigration. They're just no longer a, a community of, of desert people, right? I mean, they've got Jews all over the world. They've got um, you know, African uh, runners that are that made Aliyah part of the Ethiopian community that are now, you know, black, black Israelis mm -hmm. um, that would not necessarily be what you would say is a typical Israeli, but either am I, are representing Israel at the Olympics right now in long distance running. You know, so so the makeup of of Israel and and all aspects of Israel, including sport, is very diverse now. And and the Olympic Committee has 
has changed its tune a bit. And also with the change of some leadership. So now our program wouldn't have existed because we had already um, beaten the path a little bit mm-hmm. in the early years to create the path to follow. Um, but there's no one else that was involved and he wouldn't would even know where to start. I mean, it sounds like uh, these people lit a fire under your tuchus of, uh, you know, and brought out a, 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 a passion in you and that you just you just seized it and ran with it well basically basically, (laughs) um you know john and aaron were you know i I call myself a founding member of the original offset team of john and aaron because that was where it all began that's when we first decided we could be a team uh the call i got a couple years later um to see if we could reignite things and start the skeleton program was really sort of me taking it to the next place um, and being a self-appointed president of the program for one athlete, yeah. but, to, but to get them involved and to get them able to compete for Israel, which for me, I said, if, if, if I could offer uh, or if I could provide even half, half of the experience that I had in my couple of years to any other Jewish athlete or any other Israeli athlete, then I have to keep this thing going because it's the, one of the greatest things I've ever done in my life, even without the Olympics. Never mind. The Olympics is a whole other category, but um, but to now be able to look back at the last 20 years and say we've got legitimate shot at the next Olympic Games, we were at the previous Olympic Games. I was the driving force behind that just to keep yeah. it alive, just so that there'd be opportunity for us to have these opportunities. Um is a great sense of pride for me. And you, 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 you uh, just reminded me of a thing. Uh, I did an interview in, in, at the games uh, a few years ago. I said, I said it was such an amazing ex- moment when I got the call from Israel to say, congratulations, you guys are going to be Olympians. I mean, I can't even, I get chills just again saying it. I'm like sure. we were waiting for the call. We knew that the, the, the answer was going to happen in the next, you know, 12 hours. And then when I called AJ to say, man, we've done it. We're going to Korea. And he was sort of waiting up with his dad at 5 a.m. But when I had the chance to finally share the news with family and friends, mm-hmm. some people said, was it like vindication? I said, no, no, it wasn't vindication. I said, mm-hmm. it was a relief it was a relief to finally tell people who have supported me emotionally, financially, who chuckled every time they said, oh, this is my buddy Dave. He's part of the Israeli bobsled. And people were so happy that we finally got there. And it became much more real because no one really understood what I did from a day-to-day basis trying to run this program for, for these other athletes. But everyone understands what it takes to get to the Olympics within reason, right? You get it. And that, that to be able to have, like, I'm not considered an Olympian because I was not an athlete. Only the Olympians who compete can call themselves OLY after their name. But just for the purpose of this conversation, to be able to become an Olympian in my own way was something that I did almost for everyone else. There's so many different lanes we could travel down in this conversation, but, and at the end of the day, I want every Israeli kid, I want every Jewish kid that sees that star feel proud. You know, I want an American Jewish kid to see the American bobsled team up against the Israeli bobsled team. And I want them to have a dilemma of who they want to win that race. 
I'm an American and I'm a Jew and I'm so proud of both. But look at the Israeli team, this little sliver of sand in the Middle East. That's what I want. I want to inspire with what's going on in the world. So if I can add a little bit of light, if AJ or Jared or Dave or any of my other athletes, Georgie in the UK, um, we've all got our own connections to our communities and we've all been able to tell our story that I think has been inspiring for people. Story of perseverance and you know, it's the human interest story that you don't always get to see. Those are the most powerful moments of the Olympics. When you really get to know an athlete and their family and their support system and the struggles and the challenges and the emotions and the psychologists, all the things that got them to where they are. Um, we just see the moment on TV, but there's a, there's a story that has been lived to get them there. And the other thing is for every athlete you see competing at the games, there are hundreds of athletes that didn't get there that sacrificed exactly the same thing. And that's something that's really important for us too, is to recognize our, our excellence if we have it, if our athletes obtain it in terms of getting to the pinnacle of what they want, but also to recognize all the people that are our friends that are now cheering for us, but that were, they were our adversaries for four years because we, we were lucky enough to, to win a spot. It was, was there ever any point where you just said to yourself, what am I doing? Or like, is this worth it? Are we going to get what, what we're hoping for and working towards? Well, I, I can't tell how many times. There were many times when I said, this is it. You know, we just, it's, we're not getting anywhere. It was more, it was more stumbling block, blocks, not about the sport, but about being accepted by the Israeli Olympic program. Right. Without the full acceptance of that, then we would never get to the Olympics. Right. Because we needed we needed them. And that was like, you know, and you would think they would be on your side. Right. right. And so we had a lot of I'll tell you, interestingly, um, the guy that I battled with a lot and the one that had the final decision as to whether or not we would become part of the Olympic um, infrastructure you know uh under the umbrella of the national olympic committee of israel and through some luck and other things we got in the door in 2015 and i went to israel three times that year each time meeting with a different group of people ultimately meeting with him in the third meeting we had pitched them on our recommendations for allowing us to represent israel if we were to qualify an athlete Right. If you say no, well, then we can't compete because we can't compete according to the international rules if your local Olympic committee isn't going to accept the invitation. Right. So we need our Olympic committee to say, welcome to the team. And if you qualify, we will send you. And that was basically what the third meeting was. And I remember it was in a September and I remember going back to the um, parking lot in Tel Aviv and this Olympic offices and texting my athletes. Like, I think I was probably crying and saying, guys, it's now there's nothing in your way except you, right? And you now have a lane that has been cleared. We are officially a part of the program. If you qualify, we're going to the Olympics. So that was 2015 or 2016, maybe. Um, and then a couple of years later, we ended up at the Olympics. That's where we stand right now in terms of 
a reputable program. And when we arrived at the Olympic Games, when AJ and I arrived at the, not the opening ceremonies you see on TV, but the, there's the welcoming ceremony for each nation. And they usually bring six countries at a time to the athletes village and they raise your national flag, right? So at the end of them, all the flags are raised before the official start of the games. So it was the Israeli flag raising and they sing Hatikva and the whole delegation is there. And it's very ceremonious and very moving. It's amazing. Very moving. Mm-hmm. So when we arrived at the village, cause we were staying in a different village, we were up in the mountains where the sliding sports were. And then there was a village down in the, in the prairies where all this, like the hockey and the figure skating were. So we went down to that village where the flag racing was. And uh, Gilly, who is the president or the CEO of the Olympic Committee of Israel, saw me. This is the guy that I presented to, and I had met, I'd met again since a few times, you know, every year when we went to Israel. He gave me such a hug and a kiss when he saw me, uh, and AJ, not just me, just because just he knew how much I begged. And I said, let us have the privilege of representing Israel and trying to qualify. And if we qualify, it'll be a wonderful thing. Well, he knew he knew my story of the last number of years because he was the guy that ultimately gave the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And he was so happy to see us there. I really, at that moment, felt like we had arrived. We were part of the, the, the picture now, the winter sport picture of Israel. What was that like being able to march in the parade of athletes and countries at the Olympics, because how many people in the world get to do that? You're just repeating things that I've been saying in my head. And again, it must be because of the Olympics. Uh, first of all, you and I ran track together back in the, in the good old days. I mean, there was always, you know, whether it was realistic or not, how great would it be to be at the Olympics, right? And what's one of the most memorable things about the Olympics is the opening ceremonies, right? Is the, is the march. And I remember being a young kid and, and dreaming about that or seeing that. And, you know, nobody, you know, how many people know someone that's done that, right? I have a video of me walking in, like, from my perspective, that I watch every once in a while because it was really hard to remember it after it happened. It was just, it's just so much going on. Yeah. I really can't remember other than when I watched the video. It was one of the greatest moments of my life. It was it was the thing that we wanted to do. We wanted to march in behind the Israeli flag with our as a member of the Israeli team. And just to look around and see all these people cheering and the TV cameras and all the other athletes and delegations. So there's nothing like that. And actually, you may if you watch the opening ceremonies this this year of recent games, uh, they, they did a moment of silence for the uh, 11 athletes yes. that were murdered in Munich in 1972. Um, and I remember saying to AJ, who was the athlete um, I was there with, my, my, my guy, um, as we were walking in, I don't remember exactly what the words were, but I see, you know, we're forever connected now with the mm-hmm. Munich 11. Right. We are an Israeli. We're on the Israeli Olympic team and we represent them, too, now. Right. I don't know what made me think about it, but I just, you know, maybe it's the the same thing as breaking the glass Mm -hmm. under the chuppah. You know, in this moment of of happiness and joy, we break the glass to remember that the world isn't perfect. And, you know, whatever it is that want to bring us some context. And for me, it was like it was hard to fully celebrate that without at least thinking about 
the 11 guys that walked into the stadium in 1972 feeling like we were feeling right then and proud and excited and preparing for the next two weeks of competition and the, and what happened to them. So, and I think that's something that every Olympic, every Israeli Olympic team member feels. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's a connection, like you're connected to the, mm -hmm. the legacy of Olympics, right? Of your country. Uh, unfortunately, part of the legacy of the Israeli Olympic program is this terrible yeah. day uh, in Munich in 1972. We honored that just in our own way, just in memory, uh, in just thinking about them, right? It's, it's beautiful. I mean, it's, 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 it's out of respect. There's been so many different things, so many emotions. When I've struggled with things, you know, professionally, personally, financially, in any way that people struggle in their lives, I sometimes go back to, you know, I try to focus on some of the good things that have happened in my life or in the lives of the people that I know and care about. And that, mm -hmm. that's an anchor for me, right? That's an anchor yeah. to goodness. I think everyone has these anchors. Yeah, of course, right? you have to, to get through life. But you need to know what they are, right? And it's not as simple as just find your anchor and everything will be fine. It's just one of those tools that you can have that can help. And for me, it's been really helpful. And the continuation of the program where I haven't even had time sometimes to think about real life because I've got an athlete that needs a letter to allow them to get a visa from Israel to get into the U.S. so they can train for two months and, you know, like that kind of stuff. Like, I don't have time to feel sorry or not. And again, I'm not, I'm yeah. not, this isn't my life, but it just... I get taken back into reality all the time because things have to get done. And it's this, it's this thing um, that I'm involved with. Obviously, my kids are the biggest mm -hmm. inspiration of my life. But on a daily basis, I almost have to do this. Um, and it's, um, and I've also something for somebody else. I think that's it too. The stuff I do behind the scenes, no one will ever know. And it doesn't mean anything necessarily to anyone else, but the person I'm helping. Right. But, in I mean, whatever like, I have this, to do. This fire that's inside you. Look at what you've created in your life. Look at what you've created in all of these athletes' lives. Look at what you've created for Israel. Uh, David, I think this is just monumental. I mean, this is a legacy. Well, you know, it's part of a legacy. I'm, I'm proud of this. And I hope that this work, the team of people that I work with, and the people I've gotten to know and the people that have been impacted by my, just, just by my work because of the passion I have for it. Mm -hmm. Those, that's what I'm talking about. That's mm -hmm. the anchor that makes me feel good. Um, what will it say on my tombstone? Uh, who knows? If there are a small group of people that remember what I did yeah. in this way uh, and what it meant to me and what it meant to the Jewish people, for those that have been touched by this, um, and if my kids grow up with empathy, that's the other thing that's important to me. So if my kids grow up with empathy, and I believe they will, and the people remember this part of my life and what I've done for community, because I work for community, then I will, I'll be happy. I feel that this is who you are to the core, you know, deep in your soul, that there's a person here who is selfless. You work in philanthropy and, and nonprofits. So this is who you are. I want to read this quote. I love, I love this quote, and we'll see if I can make it through without crying. There are coaches, administrators, medical personnel, physical therapists, dozens of them wearing German colors or Latvian or Chinese or American or even Canadian. Everybody here has an army of support staff. Edelman, one of your athletes, says, David... 
as an army of one. Yeah, it's, uh, I'll, I'll start to cry. <laughs> we can cry together. You know, AJ's a pretty generous guy. Um, we went through a lot of shit to get to the games. Mm. Um, all the things you can imagine you might deal with, emotions, finances, interpersonal. Sure. Uh, other athletes fighting for the same spot. It was a very difficult year and um, for everyone. Um, that quote, when I read it, I was extremely touched and became, I think it became the, the, the title of the article, actually, I think army of one, I think I was grateful for that, but I went on Facebook, um, the next day because my Facebook blew up, uh, at the opening ceremonies. I had, I can't tell you how many people posted pictures of seeing me on the TV walking in my, my wall was, but, but this article was, it was accurate and missing some stuff. And so I wrote an article, I wrote a post along with the article to thank all the people that I could remember that helped me and our program. Because in reality, the one he's referring to is the one guy, me, that decided to stick around and keep it alive. But there were countless people, our selection committee, my, or my old coach, who I talked to almost all the time. What do we do with this? What do we do? Like, I'd never been to the Olympics before. Like, what do I do when I get there? You know, like I was, I was terrified. As excited as I was, I was terrified. Well, I don't want to miss the race. It's stupid, like you don't know, right? Right. <laughs> there were so, even the the Olympic, uh, the U.S. program, the Australian program. Um, there were just lots of people that that helped this one guy do something that he loved loved to do. And but and truly, without without all those people. They, we also wouldn't have gotten to the Olympic Games, right? I was the point person because I just was the guy in Michigan enough to try to stick around uh, and and try to try to make something happen. But there were a lot of people beside me, so that's a very touching quote. And in, in some aspects, it's it's accurate because I had to beg and plead for things. It was me that was doing that. But at the end of the day, there were so many people that helped us get to the games, you know, standing at the start line with AJ, the spectators and all the Korean people that were there cheering every country on. And again, I'm getting chills and, uh, you know, and then seeing him push off for the first run of the Olympics. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think I've even had time to really enjoy that. Don't know that I really have had a chance to really absorb what that means in the context of all the work that we've done we, we've done and that we did to get there you know it's not just a memory along the way and check a box you know like you said how many olympians do you know how many people do you know that walked into the opening ceremony so many things are things that are just so rare <laughs> that you don't even know how to process it you know i don't even like i i look at that video walking into the opening ceremony walking into the stadium behind the, the flag you know, I look at it a couple times a month, probably. It's just always fun and it's a reminder. And maybe it's like, it's, you know, if you, if you visualize it, it will happen. Maybe I want it to happen again. But also, I just, it brings me back to that moment when I can only experience that moment when I'm watching that video. Otherwise, it's just like, it's like I saw it on TV. Yeah. And a dream that you had. It's a dream. It, it, it was a dream. Uh, I, I once did a presentation and I asked the people in the room, I said, who here has achieved their lifelong dream? 
Like just what, what was your dream as a kid? What was a real dream? What, what was it? Being at the Olympics, I don't even know if it was a dream, right? Was, it was a dream as a kid, but it's one of those dreams like I want to be a spaceman or I want to be you know, an astronaut. I'm lucky to say that I've achieved the dream, you know? Um, now today, where are you at? I read that Israel is going to have a, a, a Paralympics team or that there's a Paralympic uh, athlete who wants to right. be in the uh, Olympics games. Yeah. Tell me about that. So we recruited a, an athlete um, three years ago. Uh, his name is Dave Nichols. He is, I think the terminology or what he calls himself is an incomplete quadriplegic. So he can't use his legs, um, but he's not completely paralyzed. He can't walk. He's in a wheelchair and he's got um, whatever percentage of function in his hands that he can drive and he can use his hands. He was a big athlete when he was much younger. He was a skier. Um, he got hit from behind on a ski hill by a snowboarder. Turns out that his back was broken. He woke up whenever he woke up and he was in the condition. But um, he's one of the most inspirational people I know. He started the para bobsled program for the USA. He's American. Um, and he was, he's been driving bobsleds for 12 or 15 years, modified, you know, for his, his ability. Mm -hmm. And for the last two years, para bobsled is not an Olympic sport. For some reason, they have... Uh, for the upcoming games, they have postponed it. And now there's a push for maybe in the games in 2026 in Italy. But um, so his dream was to compete in the Olympics and the Paralympics. And he probably would have qualified more than likely. And we would have had a Paralympian in our program. But so what's the only thing he can do to be an Olympian is to compete against the able body. Right. But how does a guy in a wheelchair compete against an able body, especially in a sport where the beginning of the sport, you have to run. We've worked with him and he's done so much work at developing a program where in the four man, there's usually four athletes pushing and then the driver jumps in first and then the other three jump in behind him. Right. Think cool runnings, think Jamaican bobsled team. Um, in a two man, he he's been competing for two years in the able body side where he starts the race inside the sled, obviously, because he can't run and he can't jump in the sled. The three other athletes then are pushing him until they jump in the sled. Now, the disadvantage is obvious. They're now pushing, instead of there being four guys pushing, there's three guys pushing. The three guys aren't only just pushing, they're now pushing a sled that's 200 pounds heavier because he's in the sled already. Right. Um, and so you can imagine in two men, it would be almost impossible to be competitive because... It's one guy pushing, yeah. But with three guys, it's not impossible that he could potentially qualify because he's a good driver. He knows how to drive the sled. He just can't run. And so he competed at the World Championships for us two years ago. I had qualified for the World Championships. Um, he recognizes that it's, what's, how did his coach say it? It's improbable, but it's not impossible. So um, it's, it's a beautiful thing to watch. And I've heard from other athletes, you know, able-bodied athletes to say that what games And then you can imagine the logistical side of it, running a team. And mm -hmm. on top of that, mm -hmm. with his, um, I call it his ability, because I don't see him, I don't see it as a disability, because he does more mm -hmm. uh, than I know most people do that have full ability. But in his condition, um, he's just got... I don't know what percentage more difficult it is, 
But even just getting the sled to the start line, right? He has to be prepared way in advance with helpers and crew in order for it not to disrupt the flow of the able-bodied sport, right? No one is saying you can't do it, but if the sport has to stop for 15 minutes before you can get all your shit together, well, you know, they won't go for that. So um, he's he's a remarkable guy and um what amazing story it would be right incredible again i mean you're you're providing that for him i mean with your program well yeah and i i don't know uh to be honest and i i, I don't want to i don't want to put words in any other program's mouths but um i would be surprised if there's any other program that would mm-hmm. do what we're doing mm-hmm. um you know they they focus their efforts on the able body side because it's a parasite to, to things right um, and also most programs have other bobsled teams, right? right? So he wouldn't necessarily rank in, in a place even within the, the team program. Because they already have so many athletes. Right. So, and he wants to stay on after this Olympic games and be a coach and help recruit the para athletes as well as be a coach for drivers. It really is a beautiful thing. And I've, I've come to appreciate a lot in, in this work that I do and Dave has taken it to a, a whole other level, you know? That's wonderful. It's moments like that that again are part of the anchor to help bring context to my life and the struggle of life in general and how grateful we should be for what we have. David, this has been such an amazing conversation. Done already? Is there anything else you want to add? Please. No, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I can't wait for this to be over. What are you talking about? <laughs> You, you have all schedule. You're like, my kids are calling me. <laughs> Such a pleasure, honestly, Kev. And I'm so proud of you for doing this. What a great, what a great outlet. Be creative and be inspirational. Your story and stories of others. I mean, it's a gift what you're offering. Thank you. Thank you so much for being a, a part of it. And if there's any other stories that you want to bring to the table, I'm open to that as well. Thanks again for being with us today. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Frankly Kev and spending some time with myself and my special guest, David Graves. If you enjoyed this episode and want to find out more about David and the team, support them or donate to them, there are links on this episode's page at franklykev.com. That's F-R-A-N-K-L-Y-K-E-V.com. All one word. You can also let them know your thoughts about the episode, write a review, or ask a question. And if you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more, there's a donation page on the Frankly Kev website. If you'd like to be a guest or get in touch with us, you can do that on the website. Or just email us directly at kev at franklykev.com. That's K-E-V at F-R-A-N-K-L-Y-K-E-V dot com. Kev at franklykev.com. Thanks again for joining us today. And remember, live simply, dream big, be grateful, give love, laugh lots. I know it's not original. But it's true. Have a good day.